For the next few weeks, however, leading up to Christmas, uh, which, by the way, the, today marks two weeks in one day until, uh, until Christmas Day. Uh, it is certainly coming upon us quickly. So in the meantime, though, in these next uh, couple weeks, today and the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at some Advent passages. I did this uh, last year, and I particularly in, enjoyed it. We looked at Luke's Gospel, and we unpacked the Christmas story from um, uh, the view of the, the Nativity, the incarnation of the Son of God who took on flesh to be our atonement, to be the sacrifice of our sins. And so this, this year, however, I want us to zoom out from, from the Nativity, from the manger, from, from Bethlehem, and I want us to zoom out from the Nativity, uh, and I want us to view the incarnation and the importance of the incarnation of Christ from the viewpoint of salvation history through other places of Scripture. So to do that, and one of the reasons why we read from Isaiah chapter 1 is we are going to spend our time in the book of Isaiah. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7, which is, Isaiah is one of my favorite Old Testament books. Um, I have spared you all from preaching through it thus far because I want to know it more and understand it more. Um, instead, I chose Exodus, which is still proving to be quite as difficult as, as well. So from Isaiah this Sunday, what I would like for you to see is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been prophesied in the Old Testament, in particularly in the way, in the mystery of God becoming man. And so let's look to Isaiah chapter 7, and we are going to read the whole chapter together starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramelah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook like trees in the forest that shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Sheher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria in the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. And thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the heads of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Against the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, 
and let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you weary men that you weary my God also? And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of the two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as none have come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will will whistle for the flight that is, at, that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Syria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and in all the thorn bushes and in all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the rivers with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet and with and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they will give, that they will, that they, that, excuse me, that they give, he will eat curds. And for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And in that day, every place where there used to be thousands vines worth of thousand shekels of silver, will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for there will be land and there will be briars and the thorns. For all the land, there will be briars and thorns. And, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come in their fear of the briars and thorns. But they will become place, a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now, I'm sure you're probably asking yourself, maybe right now, what does all of that, Isaiah chapter 7, all 25 verses, what does that have to do with Christmas? How is that a Christmas text? Well, you might have noticed that square right in the middle of the, the passage in verse 14 is that classic Christmas verse that most of us, or all of us, are familiar with. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I know you've, you've heard that verse before. You've seen it on Christmas cards. You've seen it on ornaments and and uh, wrapping paper, and you've seen it in decorations. It's been sung in songs. There's a whole song in Handel's Messiah proclaiming this one verse, this prophecy of the coming Messiah. This verse quintessentially is the story of Christmas. Where you probably heard it the most, or at least quoted from the most, is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. 
when the angel of the Lord goes to Joseph, the man Joseph, who was planning on at that time divorcing his betrothed wife, Mary, quietly, because he's a respectable man, not to embarrass Mary, but Mary was pregnant. He believes that Mary was unfaithful to him. And so in the midst of that plan, Joseph is sleeping, and the angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and tells him to take Mary to be his wife. Because the child that she has within her womb is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the angel told Joseph to name his son Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. And then Matthew, at the end of that little story, he gives us an interpretive note to us readers. He makes an interpretive note for us so that when we see this, we can understand that this isn't just some random story, but this is by the divine plan of God to understand the the depths of what's happening here. Verses 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 1, he says, Matthew says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, all of this took place to do what? To fulfill what the Lord had said, spoken by the prophet, and we know that prophet to be Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And in these events that Matthew is about to continue to tell, he gives us that interpretive note. He's telling us about the birth of the Son of God. And he is telling us, pay attention, listen up, because this is not just another ordinary birth. This is the birth of the Son of God. This is the fulfillment of prophecy of what we call doctrinally the virgin birth. And also announcing this name, this child, will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think of the, how remarkable that is. That Matthew looks back 600 years or so back into history, and he says it like this, that this is now being fulfilled. And so this morning, my goal, as we look at the incarnation, is I want us to look closer at what it means for the Bible to tell us, the text to tell us, behold, the virgin shall conceive. What does that mean? Is that important? Is that necessary? Is that a belief or a doctrine or agreement that that we must hold on to? Is it necessary for the celebration of Christmas? Is it necessary for Christianity? I bet for the most part, most of us have not really thought much about the virgin birth. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Praise God, by faith. You believe God's word as it has been written, but do you understand the virgin birth? Do you know what it means? Do you understand the depths and why it's necessary and why Matthew would say, 
This is what it means. Do you understand that? And if you did not know, the virgin birth is a massively controversial doctrine. Which, by the way, when, when we say virgin birth, I want you to understand that really what we're saying is not virgin birth, but virgin conception. The birth of Jesus was normal. Mary carried him in, his, in her womb for nine months, and she delivered Jesus with all the birth pangs in the manger with no halo and all of that mess. It was not a silent night. Maybe it became silent later, but not then. The miracle was the conception. There was no male involved. Joseph was not involved in the conception of Jesus. Hence, the scandal that Joseph was trying to avoid for himself and for Mary until the angel of the Lord intervened. So when we say virgin birth, we are saying virgin conception, which is a supernatural act of God. When you have a baby, and I don't mean to be offensive here, when you have a baby, that is not a miracle. That's biology. That's the process of the creation of life. It is certainly an amazing gift of God. Absolutely, it is a gift of God, but it is the normal biological process of human reproduction. But Christ's conception, as the Bible presents it, is a miracle. Because it was an act of God, because Mary's pregnancy was outside of the biological means, the normal biological means of conception. And historically, the church has always believed in the virgin conception of Mary. We see it in the various creeds and confessions that the church has written over the years, in the Nicene Creed and the Apostolic Creed. And the reason why they're in the confessions, because there's always been morons out there like Arius, who came out there trying to deny the, the deity of Christ in one way or another, which, by the way, gives us St. Nicholas, of Mira, who actually punched Arius in the middle of that particular conference that they had. Take that, history. Historically, the church has always believed it, but it wasn't until when modernism or modern thought came around, particularly in the time of the Enlightenment, that gave us various philosophies, including materialism, that says that anything in life and everything is life is only made up of what we can see or what we can touch or what we can taste or what we can observe in nature. Thus, we have what is called modern science in the ways that modern science is now. Now, of course, we understand not all of science is bad. God created science. God created the laws of science. Even though we may, uh, humanity may deny that very truth, we understand that God is the one who did it. So there are some definitely good things of science that we are thankful for. But science now, within the Enlightenment period of modernism and postmodern thought, now has to deny all miracles because miracles exist outside of what you can taste and see and see and touch and observe within nature. And so the church, and I'm speaking in a generic way, began to feel the pressure of modernism, which gave way to many churches, many 
scholars to begin jettisoning doctrines that would make them feel uncomfortable within a modern age, such as any kind of miracles of nature. You, you can, and they would say that you could believe in God without believing these miracles. So we can, we can cut out creation, the Noahic flood. We can, we can take out the, the splitting of the Red Sea. We can take out the, the virgin birth, the, even the resurrection. And you can still call yourself a Christian and still believe in God and these basic truths of how to live your life. And we see liberal Christianity, liberal Christian churches, and again, within massive quotes when I say Christian, right, we see what it's done to them and the destruction and harm and how, and, and, and how they have progressed into um, not only the toleration of wicked behavior, but the promotion of wicked behaviors. Now, we certainly understand how problematic it is. You, you cannot have Christianity without these particular doctrines. They are essential to the gospel and the, and the truthfulness of God's word. But in particular today, we want to talk about the virgin conception, because at the heart of that is Christmas. And today, I'm not really worried about liberal theologians and their writers and, and what they want to deny. They want to deny everything, right? So let's just kind of stated as it is, right? They want to deny everything, and they want to claim that the biblical writers just made it up, that they're stories that they made up to blend in with other ancient Near East religions because they had deities that have quote-unquote virgin births. I'm not worried about all of that. What I'm concerned with is with us. Should we as a church, in a modern culture as we are, in 2023, soon quickly coming upon 2024, should we still believe or hold tightly to the virgin conception? Is it necessary? Is it necessary to be something that we should preach or teach it as a creed or a confession as we preach and believe the gospel? I think these are all really good questions. And to answer those questions... We are Bible people. We must look to the Bible. We turn to no other source but then God's Word. And when we look to God's Word, we, we actually have some questions in regards to the virgin conception when it comes to the Bible. Is Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 correct? Is he correctly applying what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 7? Is Isaiah really talking about the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which takes place 600 years later? These are good questions for us to ask. These are good questions for, for you to ask and to consider, and this is why my point this morning, and there, you know some of the things that might be at stake might be that Christmas coffee mug you have in the pantry at home or in the cupboard at home that has this very verse quoted on it, with snowflakes and maybe a little manger scene on the bottom with Mary over like this and Joseph like this. Because after all, if Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is completely out of context, you're going to have to get rid of your mug. That's not Christmas, right? Go away. No, I'm just kidding. My hope this morning is not only to be able to answer these questions for you sufficiently, 
But I also want you going into this Christmas season, we've already started, I know, you're already there. Christmas season of having confidence in God's word in regards to the virgin conception. And have that have a greater confidence to have a greater joy in a Savior who came conceived in a virgin by the Holy Spirit all to bring about that which was necessary for the salvation of all of us who were once in Adam cursed to die. And so we first have to look at the story of Isaiah. Let's look at the story of Isaiah, because what is Isaiah really talking about in verse 14? Is he, like the questions we asked, is he really talking about Jesus? Well, to understand what's going on in Isaiah, we have to understand the historical context of what it is, because when you read Isaiah 7, as we just did, that really does not sound like Christmas to me. It really doesn't sound like Christmas. Now, Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 5, as we read chapter 1 in the beginning, kind of chapter 1 sums up what's happening and in, in why we are getting this prophet named Isaiah. And pretty much in these five chapters is detailing for us the sinfulness and wickedness of Israel and Judah. And, and we understand that Israel and Judah at this time are as a split kingdom after King Solomon died, they split the kingdom in half. You have, you have Judah and, uh, and, and Benjamin, and then you have the rest of them, uh, uh, the rest of the nation called uh, Israel or Ephraim or other ways that sometimes it's, it's, it's designated. And so the Lord is pronouncing their sins and their soon judgment that he's kind of bring upon them if they do not repent. And then we come to the great chapter of Isaiah chapter 6, right? All right, where the Lord calls Isaiah... And, and, and he puts this call on, on Isaiah, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, right? We're familiar with that passage, the call of Isaiah, right? So after King Uzziah, and then his son Jotham, and then in his grandson Isaiah took the throne, uh, uh, Ahaz, excuse me, took the throne, we see that in verse 1. So here's the context. So after Uzziah was Jotham, and then after Jotham was Ahaz. Soon after chapter 7, we see where this particular story takes place, right? And we're introduced to this king, Ahaz. Well, who is Ahaz? Well, we understand, uh, we understand Ahaz uh, as described from 2 Chronicles 28 or 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz is a wicked, worldly king, right? And in, in these texts, they tell us how worldly he was is that he walked in the ways of the evil kings of Israel. In Israel, the northern kingdom had some wicked kings. He worshipped false gods. He even, listen to this, he even sacrificed some of his own sons to those false gods. This is how wicked Ahaz was. <laughs> and you have to think, and it's just almost hilarious in a sense, that coming right after the great call of Isaiah in chapter 6, we understand that Isaiah is told how difficulty this ministry, you're going to preach to these people and they're not going to care. Coming right after this glorious call, his first act as a prophet as recorded in the book of Isaiah is to go and confront this wicked king. And the situation of the passage then as we, we move on into chapter 7 is we hear about the king of Syria, Rezin, and then the king of Israel, Pekah. 
And these two kings, right? Here's Israel, was supposed to be God's people, joins up with, uh, with, with Syri- the Syrian king, the wicked people of Syria. They join together, they join forces to wage war against Judah. And the reason why is because of the geopolitical situation was that there was a rising superpower called Assyria that was growing every day, and they were becoming a bigger and greater threat in the region. So Syria joins up with with Israel, also Ephraim, you see that in the text. They join together not only to try to stop Assyria when they eventually come, but to coerce Judah into joining, joining them because Judah won't join them, right? Judah won't join them in standing up against the Assyrians. <clears throat> their plan was, Ahaz was to, uh, what, their plan with Ahaz was to depose him as a king, put in a puppet king, and then use Judah and Israel and Syria to be able to take, to go against uh, Assyria. Again, right, this, this ancient Christmas prophecy, verse 14, that Matthew quotes, it's beginning with an invasion. Again, not, not exactly what you would call merry and bright. And yet we look at verse 1 tells us that even though they were attacked, right, Judah was attacked by Syria and by, Is, uh, by Israel, they attacked Judah. Even though they were attacked, they were able to withstand the attacks. But if you go back to 2 Chronicles uh, 28, I believe, 2 uh, Chronicles, what you see there isn't, that this attack upon them came with massive losses to Judah. And in fact, it gives us the numbers. And, and, and these numbers should be staggering to us. They lost 120,000 people in that war. And 200,000 of their people was taken hostage, taken out of Judah and pulled down to Israel to serve as slaves. Now, verse 2 tells us how bad that situation was. Because the king and all the people, the king, it's described as the house of David, was shaken. And the people were, were, were shaken. And the reason why is they knew that everything was at stake here. Not only the growing threat of Assyria, but the ever-present threat now of, of, Israel, of, of Israel and Syria to come back and attack them. Everything was at stake. The house of David was at stake. Go back to 2 Chronicles. Again, King Ahaz turns to, what does he do? He needs a plan to fix. So what does Ahaz do? He comes up with the, of the plan is, I'm going to turn to the Assyrians for help. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And it turns out that that was not a good move, and we'll get to that in just a second. But in the meantime, the Lord sends his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz in, in verse 3, and he tells him to go meet him at the upper pool where all the waters come in, right, which is a good place for the king to be when they're preparing for an invasion to safeguard the water. The Lord tells Isaiah to take his son, Sheer Bashub, which may sound like an insignificant detail, but it's not. You remember, we, it's studying Exodus and in Hosea and other places that we've studied together that these names, especially when God says, take this guy with you, and then it tells the name, that name has a significance, and Isaiah's son's name here has a significance, and that is, his name means, a remnant will return. And so here's Isaiah going to go to Ahaz with his son, with this, with this crazy name, I'm not going to pronounce again, right? And it means a remnant will return. And what that is a picture to this wicked king is that destruction is going to come your way 
but there will be a remnant that will be saved. The only question is, will you listen to God's word and be one of them? That's, the, that's what that sign means. He tells, he tells King Ahaz, what are you doing? Don't fear Ephraim. Don't fear Assyria. They're, they're nobodies. They, they have their plans, but the Lord God has his. In verses 8 through 9, the Lord says what's going to happen to them. Assyria is going to come in and destroy them. And he gives a time frame to totally wipe them out. But the Lord is not giving his endorsement of Assyria to come to their rescue. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Don't trust the nations. Trust in the Lord. This is why we get to verse 9. Look at verse 9 at the end of there. It's an amazing phrase. It says, if you are not firm in the faith, firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You can draw in the greatest strongholds and kings and protectors around you, but if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. That's what Jesus told us, that we plant our lives upon sinking sand. We should not be surprised when it sinks. This is is Isaiah telling Ahaz to fully trusting and leaning on the Lord. And this is the moment that this king has to do so. In which he clearly does not. Because we see in verse 10 that the Lord comes back to Ahaz through his prophet Isaiah. And he tells them to ask for a sign. Do you see that? They're almost like a blank check. You ask me, I'll do it. You want a gajillion lightning bolts crossing the sky, spelling your name, I'll do it. You want the deeps to open up with wells of water springing, I will show you whatever sign you want. Do you see that there in verse 10? Whatever you want. But again, clearly, Ahaz is not going to act in faith. Ahaz is worldly and wicked. He only acts by sight. And Ahaz makes a choice. And you see, look what he says. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, Isaiah, I think, I mean, I, I think Ahaz speaking to Isaiah knows who he's knows who he's talking to and he gives that spiritual answer doesn't he <laughs> i'm not going to put the lord our god to the test that's biblical that's scriptural how dare i the king test the lord god but it's the exact opposite isn't it he was not going to be testing the lord Because the Lord had offered him the sign. Take it. And this all should make very clear to us, once again, that Ahaz is not interested in faith. He's not interested in obedience to the word of God. Ahaz has his plan for his own survival. Ahaz has his own things that he trusts in. He trusts in the chariots of man. He trusts in strength. He trusts in number. He trusts in his own vitality. He trusts in the wickedness of nations and kings before he would look even to the Lord. Think about that. Ahaz is the very picture 
of the very darkness of Isaiah chapter 1 through 5. Ahaz is the picture of the heart of all mankind and the hopelessness, in a sense, that man is so blind and so entrenched in their darkness and their desires for darkness that we are completely unable to hear and see the truth of the word of God even when it's offered so plain and so free and so gracious, even with the intent and purpose to save them, we still will spurn it. But the Lord God in his kindness and his mercy, despite Ahaz, God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And it will be a sign to you that the Lord is with you. But not with you in the ways that you want him to be. The sign that the Lord will, will send will not be the lightning bolts from the heavens or whatever else man can conjure up. But he gives them the most unlikely of signs, and that's verse 14. Right? The big verse we've been talking about, we've been trying to get to. That a baby born of a virgin whose name will be Emmanuel. We'll get that back, back there in just a minute. But verses 15 and 16 tell us of this boy. This boy that will be, will be born. And it says how this, the life of this boy will be assigned to them as he grows and as he matures. That that's going to parallel or determine, in a sense, the downfall of Syria and Israel, that the sign of his life and his growth is going to show you when these things will take place. And then eventually, the downfall of Judah by the king of Assyria, which is the rest of the chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and 2 Kings 16, tell us of this downfall from Assyria. When Assyria comes in, and by the way, when Assyria comes in, we understand that it is Ahaz who funds them to do so. Ahaz took money from the temple. To, to bribe Assyria to protect them. And he takes the money and he bribes them and says, protect us. And the king says, sure, I'll protect you. But the king of Assyria, his name is Tiglath-Pileser, put that on your next name list. And he says, sure, and he double-crosses them. And he says, he looks at all the treasure that was brought to them. He goes, man, if this is what they bring to us just to, to protect us, what are they holding back from us? And so they go and they ravage the wealth of Judah. The overall lesson in chapter 7 is to trust in the word of God. We don't trust in man's abilities or man's devices. No matter what the situation looks like, no matter how bad the situation looks like, we trust in the word of God because God's word is always true, it's always right, and it's always good because that is who God is. Now, back to the point of the sermon. That's the context, and that's to help us understand, to ask these questions. Is that what Isaiah's talking about? Is that what Matthew's talking about? Because biblically speaking, this, this kind of prophecy out of uh, verse 14 was not one out of, a out of a vacuum. It's not, it didn't just automatically show up, and they're like, what is going on here? The sign of, uh, of women having babies in special ways and particular pregnancies is a, is a pattern that we see throughout 
throughout the Bible. And we, we understand that in these particular situations, we see God's faithfulness to keep his promise to, these peop- to his people. Genesis 3.15 begins that, where the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the Lord shows his faithfulness in keeping his covenant, opening the wombs of Sarah and Rachel and Hannah. And then we see later in the New Testament with Elizabeth. And so certainly this story is sick, should be signaling something to us special and particular, but not out of a vacuum as something we've never understood before, that God doesn't do this in special ways, in particular ways. But still, as we just unpacked Isaiah chapter 7, the sign, as we see in verses 15 through 16, is, is something that's local, it's particular, it's something that happens then and there. Right? It shows the coming destruction upon the wicked, right? It's parallel to the growth of this particular son. So they ask, so we have to ask the question in Isaiah chapter 7, who is this child? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? And if it's someone else, does that give us a problem with Matthew? So let's first answer that question in, again in the context. We're people of the Bible, right? We understand the context here, right? The prophecy in verse 14, brothers and sisters, is clearly predicting a child of that time. It's clearly predicting that. It's tied, it's linked directly to a a particular time in history that happens in the destruction of Syria and Ephraim, and then eventually Judah through through, uh, Assyria, right? It's linked to that particular time. And then we also know in chapter 8 of Isaiah, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, there is a child that is born right there in chapter 8. And this child that is born in Isaiah chapter 8 is actually Isaiah's son. Isaiah's second son. Mahar, Shalal, Hashbaz, I think. And what you see in chapter 8 is that this boy's life, I'm not going to pronounce his name again, is the one who is uniquely tied to the fall of Syria-Ephraim alliance. And the parallel is unmistakable. His name, it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, which is totally referring to what God was doing in saving his people from Syria and Ephraim, but also judging them with Assyria. The sign given to them, right? Here's the sign, right? Verse 14, the sign given to him of this young boy's life was Emmanuel, that God is with his people. That the enemies of God are doomed because God is with his people. But we have a problem, don't we? Isaiah's wife clearly isn't a virgin. We, he had a first son that he took uh, in, the, in chapter 7, but now here's the birth of a, of a second son. How do we apply? How does that, ver, that word virgin then apply in verse 14 in this particular context? Well, I want to explain this to you. Because, because all the really smart people out there in the world want to tell you that verse 14, the word virgin should really be translated uh, young woman. And so the Bible really has no uh, thought here that Jesus' birth is a virgin birth. That's the conclusion that really, really smart people, way, smart people, way smarter than me, they have degrees, many more degrees, and they're smart people. They're the experts, right? They, they're the ones that tell us all these things. Right? That we built our Bibles, we built our doctrines based upon a, mis, a very simple mistranslation. 
That's what the really smart people want to believe. However, let me give you a couple examples of why they are dead wrong. First, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. I know this is like very geeky today. It seems very teaching, teaching, and not preachy, but I'm going to get there. I promise you. I just need to build this because I really want you all to see how important the virgin birth is, okay? So the Septuagint, right, is the Greek, is the Greek Old Testament translated. And it translates Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It uses the word virgin instead of young woman, right? The, the words are there. It uses the word virgin instead of young, instead of young woman. The Septuagint was translated hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. So clearly there wasn't some kind of ulterior motive to maintain some doctrine. And second, Matthew also quotes the word that the Septuagint uses, virgin. The word that's used in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is the word alma, which is Hebrew, right? And it can be used to be translated as a, a young woman of, 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 of marrying age. And there's another word, the word for virgin is betula, right? And that's, a, that's another, that's the word that they argue, saying that that's the word that should have been used. And again, the, the problem that we want to go back to them is, is you take this massive leap from here all the way to here, and you forget everything else. Because in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham and Sarah are trying to find a wife, of maritable age and a virgin for their son Isaac, they use these words interchangeably throughout the chapter, which tells us that these words can mean both things. So to Isaiah in his prophecy, and particularly fulfilled for his wife, his young woman. But as we understand, is it fulfilled in Matthew? It is for the virgin. Isaiah is right in using one young woman or virgin interchangeably to describe his wife. And so are the Septuagint translators, and so is Matthew in using the word virgin. Why? Because Isaiah's thinking of the immediate prophecy, he's thinking in that context. But he's also thinking with an eye looking forward to a greater future fulfillment that this is pointing to eventually. I hope that makes sense. So that when the smart idiots come to you and try to convince you otherwise, you can just call it like it is. You're dumb and you don't understand the scripture. But I love you and I want to share with you the gospel. That's how you do that. And if that's the case, you never thought you'd heard a Christmas sermon calling someone dumb, right? <laughs> if that's the case, is there still a problem then with how Matthew interprets Isaiah chapter 7? And how he applies it to the conception of Jesus. Which goes back to one of our earlier questions, right? I want to put before you that Matthew understood clearly. I think he understood clearly what Isaiah is talking about <clears throat> in chapter 7. He's read Isaiah. He knows the immediate context that he knew that this was a sign to the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. And how this child was to be born then for them. But also, he, he read chapter 8, right? He knows. But as he wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he also understood everything about the Old Testament. He understands that the Old Testament, with all of its miracles, with all of its heroes, with all of its institutions and events, they're all doing what? They're foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. 
He saw Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel's child as a picture or sign of our ultimate salvation that comes through this Messiah child God with us. So how does he know? How does he know all that? Is he just making that up? No, he, he understands the scripture. He's not just looking at one verse. He's looking at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and applying it forward to what happened with Joseph because he understood Isaiah chapter 9, that there was someone else that was coming that is going to be far greater. Isaiah chapter 9 is not Isaiah's son. Isaiah chapter 9 is the greater child that was become, that would come. And the one that would come comes in the same pattern of the previous signs. Not just as a young woman that would be give birth, but a virgin will conceive. And this virgin will be, would birth, Isaiah chapter 9, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Which we understand, we know that Jesus clearly fulfills. Jesus clearly fulfills. In Jesus, he clearly fulfills this as he is born of the young woman, a virgin. This is no mere coincidence. That's why Matthew kind of interjects here by the, by the Holy Spirit, right? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he interjects here. This is not a mere coincidence, y'all. This is by divinely intended, and Matthew is absolutely correct in so and so. So now we understand the problem with answering the issue with Isaiah and with and, and with Matthew, let's get to the point. What's the point in all this? Why is there a virgin birth or a virgin conception? Why? Why is this necessary? Why, why is, it? is it? Is it just for us to look at Christmas and go, wow, that's neat, a virgin conception, a virgin, a virgin birth. This, that's what makes Christmas special, right? Because uh, there's a miracle that really makes no sense anywhere else, but that's where it's tied to. And sometimes that's the way we look at, we understand this little doctrine, this, we call it a little doctrine, we kind of attach it to Christmas as being somewhat important, but what I want to tell you is that it is monumentally important. It is massively important. Is it to just be a stumbling block for those like Ahaz who will not have faith in God's word? We know Christ is a stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling block. But should the church use the virgin birth or put the virgin birth in such a way that it becomes a stumbling block from someone coming? Well, let me answer those questions. And then I'll unpack my answer. Here's the answer. The virgin birth is absolutely necessary to, all, to the doctrine that makes up Christianity and is essential to the gospel. It is massively in part a part of the good news and I want to spend the rest of my time telling you why and here's the premise of my answer why the virgin birth or the virgin conception shows us that Jesus hear me on this this is important that Jesus is not in Adam Jesus is not in Adam in the same way that you are in the way that I am in the two ways that we are is biologically and legally. In Romans chapter 5, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That when sin came into the world through one man, death came through sin. And so legally, we are all in Adam. And because of Adam, legally, we all deserve 
death because of our sin. Because of sin. Not in our acts, not because of our acts, but because we are by nature sinners. And so legally, we are all in Adam. And biologically, we understand that we are all in Adam because we are weak and we are fallen. Our flesh is fallen. Our natures are weak. And that is passed down to us biologically. But, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we're gonna, my, our brother's going to read it at the end of our service, this, service uh, this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, or Psalm chapter 8, tells us that Jesus is a better Adam. The, the better Adam, right? The Adam that should have been, in a sense, right? And he is also the, the last Adam. He is the head of all creation. And so the, one of the, this is one of the questions, then, that the church has wrestled with for centuries, is wouldn't Jesus still inherit some sin from Mary, if Mary is a sinner? Well, the, the Catholic Church didn't know how to answer that question, so sometime in the 19th century, I think it was like 1850s, they just made up an answer. And the way that they married up that answer is, well, Mary must have been immaculately conceived herself. And if she's immaculately conceived, then clearly Jesus is not taking upon any kind of Sinful nature. Now, we, we know that that's totally unbiblical and made up. That's what it is. The Augustinian view is that the transmission of sinful nature of man is passed down biologically through man. Right? So the Augustinian view is the reason why my children act sinfully is because of me. I passed it to them. Right? That's the Augustinian, the Augustinian view. In that case, then, then because Jesus doesn't have a human father, then he wouldn't have a sinful nature, right? So you understand the, the logic there. But I think the Augustinian view, although I rarely disagree with Augustine on just a few things, this would be one of them, because I think this is insufficient. It's insufficient to Romans chapter 5, which again clearly is showing us that the sin's transmission is not merely passed down biologically, but it's passed down through our father, by our father, but by virtue, because of our father, Adam, we are all in sin. We are all fallen in our nature. And therefore, we too are sinners, and we continue to sin. And this makes our sin nature not only biological, but also legal. And so the answer to the problem with Jesus, in a sense, is did he inherit any Sin then from Mary is answered in Luke 1.35, which the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit would come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And what this verse is telling us is that Jesus takes from Mary, a sinner, what is required for his humanity and the Holy Spirit sanctifies and makes holy what is fallen. So that the Son of God takes, when the Son of God takes on flesh, he assumes a human nature that is unlike any of ours. A human nature that is unfallen and unstained with sin. And so Jesus, the only one who's born this way, biologically Jesus is sinless. And without a human father, Jesus breaks from the legal relationship with Adam. Now, this isn't just theological mumbo-jumbo, but I want you to know that this is essential to the heart of why we celebrate Christmas. 
It is at the foundation level of the gospel. Yes, the Son of God came, and we know what his mission was, that he was to go to the cross, and we know what he has accomplished to save his people from their sin. Amen. But at the heart of Christmas, the incarnation is the Son of God becoming man, taking on flesh intentionally by the sovereign will and plan of God through a virgin conception. Why? So that we can be saved. And brothers and sisters, I put before you that if it was anything less than that, then salvation never would have happened. The virgin birth is absolutely necessary. We come into the world in Adam. And in Adam, we all die. Death. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not in Adam. He was the firstborn of the new creation. You understand it now with these words? The new creation of what we are and what we are becoming. The meaning, meaning that salvation, the salvation that we needed is completely and utterly not dependent on anything of you because you're in Adam. You're dying. But it's based upon the sovereign work and plan of God that a virgin would conceive a baby. And this will be a sign unto you that Emmanuel is with you, that God is with you. And Jesus in his birth is absolutely unique from all creation, not because he was born in a manger, not because he was born in Bethlehem. Thousands of people have been born in Bethlehem. But because he was born in the miraculous virgin conception. And yes, Jesus has a human nature. He parallels to Adam in that way, but he is the better Adam. His birth patterns, all the unique births in the Bible. He was birthed just like you and me. But, it, but he is the culmination. He is the supremacy of everything before. And that is why his birth is so utterly unique. And Matthew is screaming to you this morning like me. Listen, it's been fulfilled. The Christ, the Messiah is here. Christ is not far, far, is not far removed from us. He took on flesh. He took on humanity. But he was also sinless. And why was he sinless? Because he was not born in Adam. And he was different in all of the ways that you needed him to be. In every way. How else does the word become flesh outside of a virgin conception? Our salvation through the word of God is fully dependent on a virgin conception. And this is why we hold on to it as the church. We do not jettison it because of modern thought or science or to even 
to soften the gospel for those who can't believe in such things, but maybe can believe in Jesus to save them. That would be a disservice. There's no salvation in a virginless conception of the Son of God. There's only a lie that is given that perpetrates into a larger lie that deceives people. It is the important distinction for us. And so let me apply this for you and why it's important. I want you to hear this because I think this will help you worship this Christmas even more as you consider the virgin birth and the virgin conception. Is listen to me that if you are in Christ, through the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, by the grace of God, through faith, the Lord, he has justified you. And he has imputed upon you the righteousness of Christ. We understand that is salvation. And essentially, that is the gospel. But let me put you in, in, put it in terms of things and some of the words and phrases that we have heard today. When you were born again, remember, you were born, you were born in Adam. And in Adam, all die. Adam was your federal head. And death and judgment was your end. But... But if you are in Christ, if you have been justified by the grace of God through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ. You understand that pronouncement? You are not in Adam, but you are in Christ. Because Christ becomes our federal head. No longer in Adam. That's massive. And the virgin birth does all of this. The one who was not born in Adam makes those who are born in Adam to become born again in him. Baptism, last week. showed us a beautiful picture of that. And here is this new man, no longer in Adam, but in Christ. That sin no longer defines Isaiah. But Christ does. And I know sometimes we don't feel like we're in Christ. We feel like we're more in Adam. We understand the biological weakness and we, we still understand and we feel the guilt, even the legal guilt. We feel that. Satan attempts to condemn you. How can you be a Christian? Look at you done. Uh, that, that does not deserve the gospel. Right? We hear these things. I hear these things. You hear these things. You may not feel like you are in Christ, but you still feel like you're in Adam. You still feel like sin may still reign in, in the world, in you. And we struggle with the flesh. We struggle with that sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And so we act like we're from Adam, don't we, sometimes? We act like we're from Adam to one another. 
And the virgin birth is crying out to us through the gospel to stop believing that you are still in Adam, no matter how you feel. And that is why, even though we still remain in the flesh, and that sin nature is still there, that is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, in that amazing chapter, he says there in verse uh, he says there in verse 11 this, this wonderful truth where he tells you, he says, consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin. Because it's dead. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but you are alive in Christ our, in our God. Why? Because you're no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ. Isaiah chapter 7, Matthew chapter 1 are firmly telling us, brothers and sisters, of the virgin conception of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the virgin conception is essential to the gospel because without it, there would be no salvation, there would be no gospel, no church, and all of us would still be in Adam. But praise the Lord. By His grace, by His grace, we are firm in the faith, so remain in it. How do we remain in that? Lean hard on the Word of God. Lean hard on the Word of God so, so that not only will Christmas be a joy, but every day you will be joyfully receiving the knowledge and faith that you are no longer in Adam, but you are dead to sin and yet alive in Christ. He is our Lord and He is our Savior. And I hope this morning through all of that maybe seemed like lecturing and less preaching, this morning that you have been built up and encouraged by God's Word and by this seemingly smaller and sometimes ignored Christian or Christmas doctrine, that now as you sing the songs that sing Emmanuel, as we've already sang, and sing of the, the virgin birth, that you truly know that this was God's intent and purpose all along. God is with us. And all of God's people say,